Welcome to Lipan Apocalypse, Episode 6, Sans Sabah. I'm Brandon Seal. In 1755, Spanish friars picked a particularly beautiful and defensible spot in northern Coahuila for the site of the mission that had been promised to their new Lipan Apache allies. Actually, more likely, the Lipanes allowed the friars to establish a mission at a spot where Apaches had already been living for some time. The site sat in an arroyo along the San Rodrigo River, where water swirls up from the rocky bottom and flows with striking clarity through limestone canyons and then disappears back into the rocks in tiny vortexes, little whirlwinds like the great whirlwind that had carried the Lipanes Apache ancestors down through the plains. That's my theory anyway, for why this site came to be known as El Remolino, whirlwind in Spanish, sometimes translated as circle house from the Lipanes' own language. Over the next few months, some 2,000 Lipanes came in to settle around this new mission, digging irrigation ditches, planting crops, and even erecting a chapel. Then, six months later, the Lipanes burned it all down. The Spanish friars were confused and not a little bit pissed off by this, but no more confused and pissed off than the Lipanes had been by two previous attempts by the Spanish to repurpose existing missions, missions to other native Texans, in satisfaction of their promise to establish a Lipan Apache mission. First, the Spanish had offered them a failing mission in East Texas near modern-day Rockdale, on the wrong side of the Colorado River, which was an informal borderline between Lipan and Caddoan-speaking Tejas worlds. Then, in 1654, the Spanish tried to convince the Lipanes that the missions around San Juan Bautista on the Rio Grande would be sufficient. But these missions were already occupied and dedicated to other peoples, more specifically, Humano, Coahuiltecan, and Carrizo refugees. Again, old enemies and victims of Lipan expansion. The Lipanes actually tried out San Juan Bautista for exactly one night, and then they rode off. So at least the Lipanes had given the mission at El Remolino a few months. But it wasn't long before they realized the disadvantages of making that the center of the Lipan Spanish world. For one, it was tantamount to yielding their hill country homeland to the advancing Comanche hordes. Two, it would have placed them even further away from the retreating buffalo herds, which each year retreated a little further north. And three, having a bunch of Spanish friars right in the middle of the most prolific peyote gardens, the Lomerío de Peyotes, just felt sacrilegious. In the process of overrunning the Humanos over the previous centuries, the Apaches had been exposed to a particularly powerful medicine of theirs. The Humanos, as residents of the Coahuilan Canyonlands, were heirs to a 5,000-year-old or older religious tradition documented in the rock art of the Lower Pecos and centered around the ceremonial use of peyote. The Lipanes seemed to have learned the peyote ceremony specifically from a group of Humano refugees that we will later meet as the Carrizos. You might recall them from our Season 4 on Antonio Zapata. Some later Lipanes would sometimes even call peyote carrizal from this memory. In their own language, though, they called it hush chetzal, or hush for short. The Spanish document the consumption of peyote throughout central and northern Mexico pretty much from the moment of their arrival, first among the Aztecs in 1569, then amongst the Chichimecas in southern Coahuila in 1620, 
and finally, by 1673, Spanish missionaries in northern Coahuila named a mission after the sacred cactus, Misión Santo Nombres de Jesús Peyotes, right in the middle of the Humano Carrizo homeland that the Lipanes, by the 1750s, now dominated. Until the Lipanes adopted it, peyote consumption had not really broken through north of the Rio Grande. That would all change going forward. It would become a fourth tool of Lipan-Apache alliance-making, and perhaps their most effective, supplementing intermarriage, trade, and the horse. And the leader of the band that controlled these peyote gardens was a man that we know as Captain Bigotes, or Captain Mustaches in English. Bigotes and the 2,000 or so people that he led felt a particular affinity for northern Coahuila and the Rio Grande more generally, from which they would take their name, or perhaps give it its name. In their own language, they called themselves the Big Water Band, a name that came into English first as Rio Grande in the Spanish that most native Texans had acquired by the time that Anglos started arriving. And Bigotes and his Big Water Band were the first adopters of the peyote ceremony, it seems. And it's right around the time that Captain Bigotes and his people burned down the El Remolino mission in the middle of the peyote gardens, in fact, that we see Captain Bigotes embark on a highly effective and multi-generational campaign of strategic intermarriage with mescaleros and other plains Apaches, united together now by the medicine. Out up on the Texas plains, another sizable group of, we can call them upper Lipanes, Lipanes de Arriba, were deciding to follow more directly in the footsteps of Captain Boca Comida from the previous episode by committing themselves full-on to a symbiotic coexistence with the Spanish in Texas. Captain Casablanca's 3,000 or so people called the Pecos and Devil's River region home, but they were also pushing now south, into the Wild Horse Desert between the Nueces and Rio Grande in South Texas. San Antonio naturally became a center of gravity for them. In fact, Casablanca's name, White House in English, was also, coincidentally or not, the name that the Lipanes had started calling San Antonio in reference perhaps to San Antonio's plastered buildings. One subset or closely affiliated group of these upper Lipanes was led by a young captain particularly committed to making the Spanish Lipan alliance work. Captain Taku, in his own language, known more regularly in the historic record as Captain Chico, maybe because he was young, commanded the loyalties of 300 or so Lipanes, a much smaller band than Casablanca's 3,000. But after the failed mission at El Remolino in Coahuila, Captain Chico swept into the diplomatic void and began working with Spanish friars to locate the promised Apache mission right smack in the middle of the Lipanes hill country heartland. Aside from being in his people's core range, a hill country location had the added advantage of serving as a bit of a forward base against increasing aggression from the French-armed Comanche-Norteño alliance. There's also a hint in the historical record that the Lipanes may have already installed some kind of irrigation along the Guadalupe and San Saba rivers, which was the kind of thing that Spanish colonizers were always looking for. That in silver. What actually finally got the Lipanes their mission up on the San Saba River were rumors of silver mines in the barren granite outcroppings of central Texas, the famed non-existent mines of El Almagre. On April 17, 1757, Spanish friars established the Mission Santa Cruz de San Saba on the San Saba River. They performed the prescribed ceremonies of toma de posesión, of taking possession of the mission in the name of the Lipanes, 
and they even brought their customary tribute payments, which the Lipanes had required, of course, to seal the deal. But neither Captain Chico, nor Captain Casablanca, nor any Lipanes, in fact, were there to meet them. This was the kind of Lipan behavior that always really infuriated the Spanish friars and set their mind to concocting conspiracy theories. In defense of the Lipanes, April was a strange time of year to expect the Lipanes to dismount and plant corn. April was their last chance to hunt buffalo before the animals retreated north for the summer. At least, that's what Captain Chico told the friars when he finally did show up in June. But we're also seeing here the roots of a deeper Spanish Lipan misunderstanding. Lipanes viewed missions principally as trading and reprovisioning posts. The Spanish viewed them as tools for reducing wild mounted natives into docile corn farmers. Those were not mutually compatible visions in any sense, and so one or both parties was bound to be disappointed by this arrangement. The Spanish friars' hopes were lifted, however, when in the fall of 1757, Captain Chico finally came around with not only his 300 people, but also Casablanca's 3,000. Half of the Lipan nation was now settled in the San Saba River Valley around this new Spanish mission. Granted, only a handful seemed willing to actually enter the mission and convert, much less plant corn for the Spanish. Most were content to just visit and trade and to prepare themselves for the retaliation that they knew was coming from the north. Because the Spanish mission at San Saba was a brazen advertisement of the new Spanish-Lipan alliance to the French-armed comanche cadoan Norteño alliance that was determined to frustrate them. At the same time that the Spanish friars were founding the Mission San Saba and wondering where their Lipan allies were, Padawan-speaking Tejas had been viciously attacking an eastern Lipan town while the Comanches raided across the Lipanes' central Texas ranges. What Captain Chico hadn't told the Spanish friars was that he had missed the April inauguration ceremony because he'd been on a retaliatory mission with Captain Casablanca against a Comanche war party that had killed Casablanca's brother. It was this experience, in fact, that might have helped convince Casablanca to come in with Chico to the Spanish mission and consolidate forces there. On February 25, 1758, Norteños, more specifically, Caduan-speaking Wichita's this time, raided the new San Saba Presidio and rode off with its horse herd. Smoke signals on the horizon in the first days of March confirmed that a larger attack was soon to follow. Many of Chico and Casablanca's upper Lipanes sent their families down to Coahuila to live with Captain Bigotes in the Big Water Lipanes until the trouble subsided, and the two captains pulled their fighting men out onto the Texas Plains, just days before some 2,000 Wichitas appeared outside the Mission San Saba's feeble walls on March 16, 1757. Freshly armed with French guns, accompanied by a force of Tonkawa and Comanche auxiliaries, and with at least one officer in a French uniform, the Norteños announced to the terrified Spanish friars that they had come looking for Apaches. The priests insisted that there were no Apaches in the mission and tried to appease the Norteños with gifts. Eventually, the priests let the Norteños into the mission to show them that they had nothing to hide. The search turned into a ransacking, and then into a rampage. Norteños killed the head priest and seven others, fired their muskets at the church, set fire to the buildings, and then rode off toward the Presidio, three miles west. Wildly outnumbered, the Presidio commander kept his men inside the walls of the Presidio and wisely kept his gates shut. When morning broke, the Norteños were gone, but they had delivered their message loud and clear. 
the Spanish-Lipan alliance would not be tolerated. Captain Chico and his Lipanes returned to San Saba a few days after the massacre. They helped the Spanish scour the countryside for survivors and actually found a few. For months afterward, Lipanes conducted regular patrols of the countryside, which was still full of signs of Norteño Comanche presence. In December, a patrol party led by Captain Chico was ambushed by Comanches. 21 Lipanes were killed. Only Chico and 12 others escaped. Captain Chico swore revenge. At a January 3, 1759 war council, convened by the Spanish military commander in San Antonio, Captain Chico offered to lead a retaliatory campaign with 600 Lipan warriors, which would have been most of the men of fighting age in his and Casablanca's bands. Spanish officials, however, bore a grudge toward the Lipanes by this point for having abandoned the mission San Sabab just prior to its destruction, and some even wanted to believe that they had maybe been complicit in it. Still, the Spanish commander decided to accept the offer of Lipan aid, in part anyway. The Spanish commander retained command of the expedition himself, but enlisted 134 Lipanes to assist his 500 or so Presidials, Militia, and San Antonio Mission Indians. In a remarkable campaign unrivaled in the annals of Spanish Texas history, and about which you can hear more in Episode 6 of Season 1, this allied Spanish native force launched a 400-mile retaliatory raid deep into Comanche Norteño territory. In October, they surprised a Norteño village, killing 45 and capturing 149. A few days later, they assaulted a major Norteño population center located near the modern town of Spanish Fort on the Red River. Thousands of Wichita, Tonkawa, and Comanche buzzed around inside the palisaded town, guarded by French cannon and, according to one account, manned by a dozen or so French soldiers. The Lipanes, presumably led here by Captain Chico, played a vital role in the Spanish assault, scouting the crossings, stampeding the Norteño horse herd, and eventually fighting as the rearguard when the Spanish commander decided to return to San Antonio. Various historians have written up this so-called Battle of the Twin Villages as a Spanish-Lipan defeat, but that doesn't quite fit the evidence. The combined Spanish-Lipan force inflicted major losses on the Norteños, including the killing of a major Wichita captain that seemed to cause some great deal of grief amongst the Norteños. The Lipanes certainly celebrated the campaign as a victory, with songs and dances, both the night after the battle and on their return to San Antonio. Even the skeptical Spanish commander of the expedition admitted that the Lipanes had served, quote, loyally and affectionately, end quote, a service he rewarded by giving them the majority of the Norteño captives as prizes of war. The Battle of Twin Villages also sowed the seeds of the dissolution of the Norteño alliance. In 1771, four Caduan-speaking Wichita nations made separate pieces with Spanish authorities in San Antonio, without their Comanche allies. Geopolitical convenience would still occasionally align them with the Comanches, but they would be far less of a unitary force going forward. And after this battle, the Tonkawas would begin a century-long drift into the Lipan orbit, aided, it seems, by the introduction of the peyote ceremony, yet another instance of Lipan's soft power and cultural absorption complementing their fearsome reputation on the battlefield. So here's the really strange part. Despite what was, for all tactical purposes, a Spanish-Lipan victory, the Spanish-Lipan alliance would almost immediately crumble after this battle. Spanish military and civil administrators seemed to just come hardwired with a deep and abiding mistrust of the Lipanes. 
they would never quite forgive the Lipan disappearance just before the attack on the Mission San Saba. Even as the Spanish friars, the ones whose brothers were actually massacred there, seemed much more willing to forgive the Lipanes. Almost immediately after the Battle of Twin Villages, the friars boldly reopened two new hill country missions for the Lipanes. These missions were located on the headwaters of the Nueces River near modern-day Camp Wood, Texas. And this time, after the friars performed their Toma de Posesión ceremony, the Lipan captains reciprocated with their own ritual, pulling grass up by its roots and pouring water on the stones underneath, symbolizing their full buy-in this time around. Spanish military and civil authorities still thought the friars painfully naive, however, even as 400 Lipanes soon gathered around each of the two new missions. And this time, the missions drew in Lipanes not just from Captain Chico's and Casablanca's upper Lipanes, but also from Captain Bigote's more standoffish big water Lipanes down in Coahuila. In fact, representatives of as many as seven of the ten known divisions of the Lipanes at this time were present in this new mission, a demonstration of the Lipanes' continued commitment to the Spanish-Lipan alliance. But if Captain Chico represented the extreme accommodationist position, advocating for closer Lipan-Spanish relations, and Captain Bigotes represented a sort of peace-first-but-keep-your-distance strategy, there was a third, much more overtly skeptical, if not outright hostile faction, amongst the Lipanes as well. The most vocal leader of this faction became a man named El Lumen, sometimes identified as a captain, sometimes as a medicine man. In the fall of 1762, El Lumen and many of the other men left the new missions to hunt buffalo for the upcoming winter. The mission priests, however, had been most insistent, most suspiciously insistent, that the men leave their wives and children behind. For their protection, priests claimed, though the Lipanes remembered how well the Spanish had protected the inhabitants of Mission San Saba. In the end, the missionaries all but required that the Lipan hunters leave their women and children behind or else the missionaries might just close the missions altogether, they said. The Lipan hunters relented. But as soon as they were out on the plains, El Lumen had a dream. In the dream, El Lumen saw the Spanish friars abandoning the new hill country missions and taking the Lipanes' women and children with them. El Lumen told the rest of the hunting party about his dream, and soon enough, he had the entire party in a panic. They didn't have to reach back far in the historic record to justify their fears either. There were Lipanes still alive who remembered Spanish slaving expeditions and remembered how Spanish administrators had used Lipan women and children captives as bargaining chips in the 1720s, 30s, and even 40s. El Lumen led the hunting party on a frantic ride back to the Nueces headwater missions. To their great relief, when they got there, all of their people were still there. But El Lumen's suspicions still remained, and he decided to bring the entire issue to a head. He devised a test to see what was more important to the Spanish friars, Lipan friendship or Spanish superiority. He confronted one of the friars and made a demand of him. Give me the altar cloth from the chapel, he said. Why? the priest asked, confused. To use as underwear, El Lumen said. Not surprisingly, the priest refused El Lumen's request, which only validated his fears. Then, as if in confirmation of the emptiness of Spanish promises, not long after this incident, a major Comanche attack on the new missions left 50 Lipanes dead. What good was Spanish friendship if they couldn't or wouldn't 
even defend their friends? Where were these mighty Spanish guns that were supposed to be defending them? And what if, El Lumen asked out loud now, the Spanish had established these missions just to gather the Lipanes all in one place to make it easier for their enemies to kill them? Once again, events conspired to prove El Lumen right. An epidemic began to sweep through the densely populated missions. 63 Lipanes died that winter, which we know because the friars recorded them all as baptisms, extracted even as they were in the throes of death, and also apparently only after promising the sufferer plenty of mitotes in heaven if they converted. But it also wasn't hard to conclude, as El Lumen did, that maybe it was the baptisms themselves or killing Lipanes. Around this time, El Lumen had another dream. A vision, rather, but this time others saw it as well. In this vision, an old man or sometimes an old woman appeared and then vanished and then would appear again. El Lumen might not have known this, but his vision coincided almost exactly with the end of the Seven Years' War in 1763. As a result of that war, Spain would more or less disappear from Texas for a while. That's because French Louisiana became a part of the Spanish Empire after 1763. Texas no longer sat on the Spanish frontier with France. And Spain also inherited French Louisiana's colonial administrators, who were by this point firmly aligned with the Caduan-speaking Norteños in Texas, as well as the Comanches. It seems doubtful that El Lumen foresaw all of these geopolitical consequences, and yet the figure in his dream spelled it out clearly for him and his compatriots, and seemed to even build upon his first dream in a way. The Spanish were about to abandon their promises to their Lipan allies, and leave them to the mercy of their enemies. All the signs, El Lumen indicated, pointed to a future of, quote, continuous war, end quote. On January 21, 1766, 400 Comanches and Norteños swept into the Nueces Valley and overran one of the new Lipan missions, killing six Lipanes and taking 25 captive. The Lipanes retaliated immediately, catching up to the retreating Norteños two days later on the Llano River and killing 200 of them. Quote, they could hear the Norteños weeping as they trudged northward to their homes, end quote. But the Norteños returned again in October, this time overrunning both of the Nueces headwater missions and marking their end. The Spanish abandoned the Texas Hill Country missions for good, just as El Lumen's dreams had foretold. In that same year, a royal inspector, the Marquis de Rubí, started an inspection tour of the Spanish North American frontier, which is really to say, the borderline between Spanish North America and the Apache Empire. The Marquis de Rubí quickly absorbed his administrator's mistrust of the Lipanes, and it certainly didn't help that they attacked his entourage first near El Paso and again near El Remolino in Coahuila. After those terrifying experiences, he became convinced that the Lipanes were a particularly untrustworthy, quote, mob of savages, end quote. The Marquis de Rubí's report and recommendations would be codified in the so-called Reglamento of 1772. At the core of the Marquis de Rubí's recommendations was a conviction that Spanish North America would never know peace until the Apaches were eliminated. It was a total abandonment of the Spanish-Lipan alliance and a complete abrogation of the Spanish-Lipan Treaty of 1749. The Reglamento of 1772 took the extreme step of actually authorizing outright offensive war against the Apaches for the first time really since the initial conquest of Mexico. 
The Apaches were, going forward, indios bárbaros, outside the protection of the law. Military commanders were in fact forbidden from even offering peace to the Apaches going forward. And Apache war captives would be shipped now down into the interior of Mexico or even as far as Cuba to try to depopulate the region. The entire northern frontier would in fact be militarized, grouped into a new commandancy of the interior provinces. And lastly, the Marquis de Rubí ordered the pullback of Spanish forces, with the exception of Santa Fe, New Mexico, behind the shortest possible line of presidios, running in a more or less straight line from the Gulf of Cortez to El Paso to San Antonio and to the Gulf of Mexico, a line that represented the border between Spanish North America and the Apache Empire, and a line passed down to the present today, essentially, as the U.S.-Mexico border. The Marquis de Rubí's final conclusion spelled it out in stark terms, quote, the only method of terrorizing, subjecting, or even annihilating these Apaches is a continuous offensive in their own territory. By this means, they would be exterminated in a short time, end quote. The Viceroy followed through on the Marquis de Rubí's recommendations and ordered that the new commandant of the interior provinces seek out the Apaches and, quote, maintain a continuous war against them without observing the solemnities of the law, end quote. And there it was, the continuous war, in the exact same words even, that El Lumen's visions had foretold. And yet precisely because they had been warned by El Lumen's visions in 1762 and 1763, the Lipanes had been preparing. They had always struggled to find a reliable source of guns, but around this time, they made contact with a new square on the Texas checkerboard. Crammed into the southeast corner of Texas lived a people called the Bidai, neighbors of the old East Texas Catawans, but not entirely aligned with them. They were, however, aligned with French traders, and they had access to French guns. And so thanks in parts to the mediating efforts of that famous old East Texas Tejano, Gil Ibarbo, the Lipanes were able to negotiate with the Bidai to purchase several hundred muskets. And immediately thereafter, Spanish soldiers were now writing of the Lipanes, who were always a wealthy people to begin with, but previously without firearms, quote, rare is the Indian among them who doesn't have two muskets with sufficient powder and bullets, end quote. Newly armed, the Lipanes unleashed an old-school Apache whirlwind before the Spanish could launch their, quote, continuous war, end quote. They hit the Comanches first and hard, driving them out of the hill country and all the way back to the Red River. Then, in 1771, they poured across the Marquis de Rubí's imaginary line and raided all the way to Durango, deep into New Spain. They attacked the ranches around Monclova, killing 23, capturing 22, and running off a thousand head of livestock. Here is where Captain Bigote's lifetime of alliance-making and intermarriage paid off. A Spanish chronicler at the time would call Bigotes the Adam of all the Apaches, in recognition of his role at the top of nearly all the Apache kinship networks in this region now. It allowed him to orchestrate attacks across 200-mile stretches on the same day, at the same time, and with devastating effect. Describing Coahuila during those years, another Spanish chronicler wrote, quote, that no stone, bush, or plant could be found that was not tinged with blood, end quote. The Lipanes were at all places at once across a thousand-mile-long frontier, and it got the attention of other Texas natives. 
they're Caddoing speaking Texas rivals in East Texas, now without their French allies, read the changing winds, and decided to negotiate for peace with the resurgent Lipanes. The Spanish governor of Texas, however, got wind of this and hired assassins to murder the three Lipan peace commissioners who had gone to negotiate the terms of this Texas alliance. It was a mark of Spanish desperation, and the Lipanes made them pay for it. They, quote, surged across the land like a storm wind stirring dust devils, end quote, a Spanish official wrote, either consciously or unconsciously invoking Apache imagery in the process. But now unencumbered by the niceties of the laws of civilized warfare, the Spanish retaliated. On December 22, 1775, an enormous Spanish force of 2,228 soldiers and militia finally caught up to a Lipan army up on the Devil's River. Over the course of the next month, two forces would engage in at least 15 separate battles, leaving 194 Lipanes dead and 168 captured. And that was before the final attack on the Lipanes' rear by Comanches working in secret coordination with Spanish forces. A slaughter ensued. 300 Lipanes were left dead after this battle, men, women, and children. For the first, but not nearly the last time, colonial officials would declare the Lipan nation to be in ruins. Spoiler alert, they weren't. In the decade following the Reglamento of 1772, Lipanes and Mescaleros, working together now thanks to that lifetime of alliance-making by Captain Bigotes in particular, would kill 1,674 Spaniards capture 154 of them, ransack 116 haciendas, and run off 68,256 head of livestock. They almost killed the Comandant General of the Provincias Internas himself in a battle near Santa Elena Canyon, south of Big Bend. Because of this surge in Apache hostilities, the mines in Chihuahua had to cease operations, and beef became scarce all the way in Mexico City. Not only had the Apaches halted the advance of Spanish empire, by the 1780s, they were on the verge of sending it into retreat on the next episode of Lipan Apocalypse. Thank you for listening. Editing for this episode was performed by Susana Canseco. The intro and outro music is from the White Mountain Apache Crown Dancers. You can find them on YouTube. Special thanks this season to my Lipan friends, Bernard Barcena, Lucille Contreras, Richard Gonzalez, Margot Moreno, and Gary Perez. I hope I'm doing your story justice. And make sure to check out Lucille's Texas Tribal Buffalo Project online and fill out her Texas Indigenous Data Sovereignty Study. For more information about the Lipan Apaches, check out the books by Thomas Britton, Jose Medina Gonzalez Davila, Nancy McGowan Minor, and Sherry Robinson. Also, check out the doctoral thesis of Enrique Maistas and the Texas Observer article by Dylan Dewar. Lastly, go to Gorka Alonso's website, apacheria.es. For more information on my other projects, you can go to brandonseal.com. <laughs>